In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we've got a lot to get through. We're going to be talking about skills for a nine-year-old, leather belt kits versus jackets, some help with identifying bracket fungi. We're going to talk about tinder bundles and ember extenders, online bushcraft courses, bushcraft shows and events in 2017, bushcraft courses for scout leaders, and what makes a bushcraft knife a bushcraft knife. Welcome, welcome to episode 45 of Ask Paul Kirtley. And it's a frosty day here in the north of England. I'm back in the north of England visiting family over the Christmas to New Year period. And so I'm recording this right at the end of the year. And we've had uh, windy weather this week. We've had relatively warm weather. It's been up in the almost mid-teens uh, Celsius. And now it's uh, frosty. It's in the minus Celsius today here in the shade. Um, just below freezing, really nice frost. You should be able to see that behind me down in this little river valley, which I like to explore on a fairly regular basis. You, those of you that are regular viewers who are watching this will recognize this as one of my regular stopping places for recording Aspore Kirtley. It's got a really nice vibe to it. It's nice and quiet, it's relaxed. There's a stream running over there. There's um, a couple of nice Norway spruces over there. There's one of my favorite oak trees here and there's a conveniently placed windblown branch for me to sit on here. It's a really nice sheltered spot. Whatever the weather, I really enjoy coming here. So it's nice to be here again and answering more of your questions. I poured myself a nice hot cup of coffee just to keep myself going. And um, without further ado, because it is chilly, I will get on with the questions. Now I have a new phone. Uh, it wasn't a Christmas present, it's just that my, my contract was up and I decided to get a new swanky phone which is very nice so far. Um, nice camera on it so if you follow me on Instagram, I know I keep going about Instagram, but if you follow me on Instagram the quality of my photos on average should be going up um, because the, the camera on this new phone is a lot better than the old one so, so check that out. I do try and put some useful stuff out there. But anyway, First question, skills for a nine-year-old. And this is from Daniel. And his question is, my family really enjoys the outdoors, camping, hiking, paddling, etc. I have a teenage daughter and a nine-year-old son that are interested in learning more about bushcraft. Which bushcraft skills would you suggest first, teaching to young people just learning about the subject? What are the core things they should know to use as a base for future learning? My knowledge and skill level is probably advanced beginner, so I really look forward to improving on my own skill set while working with them. Thanks, Daniel from Florida. So, I think, now my memory's getting a bit fuzzy, you know, we're, we'll be up to episode 50 soon. Um, I'm sure that we had a similar question about a year ago. Um, it may even have been the episode I recorded around last Christmas time when I was sat in the snow. Um, it was Christmas or early in the new year. Um, filmed not far from here, actually, in the same, in the same area of, of County Durham. If that's the case, I'll link it in the show notes and I'll link it up here. 
But to answer your question directly, um, I think the basics are the basics, wherever you are. Um, one of the most important skill sets is fire lighting, and I don't mean friction fire lighting, I just mean good quality basic fire lighting. Can they take a very small flame and turn it into a fire? Can they establish a fire um, in a way that's sustainable? And that's a skill that a lot of people don't have. Um, more people who have decided that they're interested in bushcraft and want to go down that skill set have that skill but a lot of people don't do it very well and I think just being able to consistently take a small flame whether it's from a match whether it's from a cigarette lighter whether it's from um, dropping a spark onto a piece of fungus and blowing that into flame via a tinder bundle however you're getting that small flame I and mean, you can work on all of those skills at some point but that core element is I've got a small flame how do I take it to an established fire in the environment that I'm likely to find myself in in the environment that I'm likely to find myself in in the conditions I'm likely to be out so if you enjoy hiking and camping and paddling and those things then you know if you're going to be having campfires get the kids to light the fires um, they can practice closer to home and then when you're out on a trip whether it's a you know an overnight or however long you go out for hiking and paddling if it's more than a day trip then get them to say okay um, your responsibility today you guys get the fire going get the materials that you need get a fire lit okay if that's not possible in the areas that you go if it's against the park rules or what have you or there's a fire ban then just practice at times a year closer to home when um, when you can that would be a core thing um, also just make sure that they start to understand um, what all the, the common trees and plants are around um, a lot of people get very focused on all the hard skills in terms of things to do with knives and, and whatnot. And we'll come on to that in a second. But equally, you can't really get very far with bushcraft unless you can start to recognise the resources that you can use. Otherwise, you end up falling back on an overemphasis on equipment. And I don't mean that equipment's not important, but I just mean an overemphasis. It's like, what is there around me? What are the common trees and plants that I see in my area? what's useful to me in terms of utility, what's edible in terms of food, particularly easily collectible things if you're going out for day trips and whatnot, you can look at those things. And also what's dangerous. And I think for kids in particular, it's really worth showing them what are the poisonous plants, whether it's contact poisons that they're gonna get a rash, blistering, contact dermatitis, those type of things, if there's anything like that in your area. What are the poisonous berries? Um, what are any other hazards that are key hazards in your environment like that? So they've got that as a baseline. Not to frighten them, what we don't want to do is frighten them about plants and trees and eating wild foods because much of what's out there is great. There are, but there are a few things to be avoided. And in any one environment, there's probably a few key plants or trees that you really need to know about in terms of them being you know hazardous whether it's poison ivy or whether it's um you know arum berries or whatever it is there's a few things chainsaw just started in the background <laughs> typical whenever i whenever i find a quiet spot and sit down to record something goes there's no planes today anyway that, that you might be able to hear a chainsaw in the background i don't know i can hear it but it's behind the camera so the microphone may not pick it up um, so those, those are some of the things. What, what can they recognise in the area? 
what are um, the key things that they can use or start to learn in terms of tree and plant identification, lighting a fire with the materials that are available to them, getting a small flame to an established fire, that's a really important skill. You can then fill in how lots of different ways of getting a small flame in the first place, but the key thing is flame to fire. Um, and then I guess you also want to start just some of the basic campcraft things. So some basic knots are really useful. Um, kids are good at picking things up quickly. And certainly my, my uncle was in the Merchant Navy and he taught me some knots when I was around about that age, seven, eight, nine. And I still remember, I still remember learning them with him and I still remember um, how to tie those knots. Um, and then later on, I learned other knots as well from my dad, from scouts and, and, and whatnot. But having that foundation of, you know, being able to tie a bowline, being able to tie a, a, a round turn and two half hitches, being able to tie a reef knot, being able to tie a fisherman's knot, a few of the basic knots that are going to be very, very useful to you, you know, an overhand knot, a figure of eight. And, you know, everybody can tie an overhand knot, but just understanding when they're useful, when they're not useful as well as you go along is, is good. So putting that baseline in, a little bit about navigation. Again, if you're doing day trips, um, you could get them familiar with compass and map work and relating it to natural signs as well that are around, particularly if you're interested in bushcraft, natural navigation. So I think getting them aware of their surroundings and getting them to be able to do some basic skills around camp. You know, once they've got their knots, they can put, help you put tarps up, get them involved in those sorts of things. Tying the painters onto your canoe, just get them involved in all of those things that you do that maybe you just take for granted, but is a skill unless somebody teaches you how to do it, you don't know how to do it properly, get them involved in all of those things, um, setting up the boats, packing the rucksacks, how does that work, planning the meals, going out, cooking, once they've got the fire going and the tarp up and you can cook, all of those things, just get them involved and get them enjoyed, just in the same way as kids see those things as normal at home if you get them involved in cooking and washing up and tidying up. It doesn't have to be a chore, it's just part of what you do. Um, that's where I would start and then you can fill in with some of the harder skills. If you do introduce them to cutting tools, I would suggest that you start off with a small knife and that you're very careful. Um, I've got some good articles um, on some of my sites. Um, I'll link uh, in the show notes because there's multiple ones rather than at the top here. So if you're listening to this, go to paulkirtley.co.uk, find episode 45. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, go over to my blog. There's a link underneath. Go over to my blog, episode 45. There'll be some stuff there for knife safety, general knife safety and knife safety, particularly with kids. Make sure you're following those things and get them involved in that as well if you want to. I would suggest practicing a bit closer to home rather than further away from help, just in case somebody does cut themselves and then get them familiar, build up. The other thing I should say about those articles on my blogs, there's lots of good advice from other people as well. People who are scout leaders, people who are parents, people who've had experience of introducing their kids to um, different skills, particularly knife skills. Underneath those articles that I'll link to in the show notes, there's some good advice there. So don't forget to read through the, um, the comments as well. That's one of the great things about my blog. There's such a great community of people around it. And um, I learn stuff from people and there's loads of good experience being added into the comments there as well. And in that vein, um, let's throw it out to the audience as well. What would you suggest that would work well, particularly if you're in the sort of part of the world that Daniel is, down in, the, uh, in Florida, down in that part of the United States? 
Um, what would you suggest for Daniel to be doing with his nine-year-old um, son and his teenage daughter in terms of the things that they like doing? What bushcraft skills would you recommend? What have you done with your kids? Um, let's throw it open to the comments. So comment in under the video in YouTube or comment under the video and and podcast on my blog episode 45 and let's see what you come up with as well but i think there's plenty for you to be going on with there daniel okay next question leather belt kits versus jackets this is a question from dave neville from twitter not so many twitter questions coming in these days but i do keep an eye out for them um search on ask paul curtly so if you've sent me a question with the hashtag ask paul curtly on twitter i will find it and um, please don't private message me please don't private message me on facebook um i cannot search you know i don't i don't sit here waiting for the questions to come in and then answer the question when i come to record one of these i'm going out for a hike and i think i might have time to record and ask paul curtly today i will search on instagram hashtag ask paul curtly i will search on twitter hashtag ask paul curtly i will search my email for emails with hashtag ask paul curtly in and I will have a look if there's anything coming from SpeakPipe and that actually feeds into my email. I get an email notification if there's anything on SpeakPipe. So it, unless you are putting a public post on Instagram, a public post on Twitter, or sending me an email via SpeakPipe or typing it with Ask Paul Kirtley in the hashtag, I'm not gonna find it. Um, so, and some people are gonna interpret that as me having a go or me being an arse. I'm not, I just, <laughs> I just need to be able to find your questions at the time I record the shows. And the easier you make it for me to find them, the easier it is for me to answer them. Okay. It's just that I've had a few people sort of sending me messages in strange ways recently that uh, asking questions. And I, I may well just answer it at the time, or I may not have time to answer it at the time, in which case I am not going to remember it's there. I'm not going to, and then I'm not going to find it with a search. That's the problem. Um, I get a lot of communications from all sorts of different people through all sorts of different channels and so I need to be able to filter out your questions um, before I record one of these shows so I'm not I'm not being difficult I just need to be able to find your questions anyway Dave Neville has done the right thing sent me a tweet with hashtag ask Paul Kirtley on um, hi Paul what are your thoughts on handmade leather belt kits over jackets in the woods well I'll cover the obvious point to start off with, Dave. Um, I, you're clearly talking about equipment stowage as opposed to um, other utility value. Clearly a jacket is important for other reasons as well. Um, if it's got some insulative properties, um, most jackets have, so if we're talking outdoor jackets, shell jackets have some windproof um, qualities about them. They may have some waterproof or at least showerproof qualities to them. And they may also protect our warm layers underneath particularly for wearing wool um, we've talked about merino base layers a lot i've got a merino base layer on today a lot of people wear a couple of layers of merino um, so they're like a thin merino base layer and then they might wear uh, a more of a loop stitch one over the top or they may wear a wool jumper any of those wool garments wool is fantastically warm but it's not massively tough and particularly the fine merino garments if you're pushing around in the in the bush against tree trunks carrying logs and um, carrying bundles of kindling they're going to get pulled they're going to get holes in them very very quickly so 
a shell jacket is, is clearly useful to go over the top, whether that's, um, you know, just a cotton windproof, whether it's Ventile, whether it's Gore-Tex or similar, um, something over the top is going to be protective of you and of the layers underneath. But I take it we're not talking about that. We're talking, but that is something to bear in mind. You know, don't just think of it as pockets versus something else. You're going to have a jacket anyway. It's not like you're not going to take a jacket. Um, even if you're going to carry some of your items some other way. So belt kits um, and leather belt kits in particular. So I take it you're not coming from a sort of military belt kit perspective. Um, I, I think there's something quite nice about well-made leather and hand-stitched items. And there's something, you know, whether it's just a small pouch for a pocket knife or even if it's even if it's a slip like the, the I've just got this new phone and I've got a nice leather binding for it there's something nice about um leather there's something <laughs> somebody's going to misconstrue that um there's something nice about handmade natural materials you know handworked natural materials and I think particularly for those of us that enjoy nature we enjoy the craft side of of bushcraft we enjoy the craft side of um, using natural materials, then there's something very attractive about leather uh, goods, whether we're purchasing them or whether we're making them ourselves or whether we're using them. Um, I've got a leather belt on today. I've had it for years. I really, really like it. Um, the only time I don't really wear it now, although it depends, is on some canoe trips I won't take it because if it gets wet, um, if I fall in, which does happen from time to time, or I need to wade up, you know, if I'm not wearing dry pants, if I need to wade, you know, if I'm in, you know, on a really swampy portage, or I need to wade out, um, or I need to pull the boat in, or I slip in into something that's up to my waist, it's gonna get wet. Um, and then it can take a while to get dry, and having a wet band around your waist for a number of days can then start causing other issues you start to get soreness it itches you know if your skin's wet the whole time so there are there are those other issues so I think about whether or not having a leather belt is a, is a sensible idea generally I like to because I can you know particularly if I'm in areas where I'm going to be using axes and knives um, wilderness areas with lots of trees so you know Canada is a classic example something like our blood vein trip I will probably wear a leather belt because then if I need to sharpen my tools I can use my belt as a strop and I'm not having to carry extra equipment with me it's also very very strong um, I can you know hang a, a, a fire steel off it and put it in my pocket and I know that the lanyard's not going to not going to break you know whereas if I put it through the through the trouser belt loop on my trousers they can easily pull out so um, I like leather belts for starters um, when I'm winter camping I tend to wear a, a leather belt over the top of my smock with um, a bigger knife on the outside. I tend to have a small belt knife or a small or a pocket knife, a, fix, uh, a, a folding but locking blade um, in my trousers or on my trousers um, because then I've got that, whether I'm inside the hot tent and I've taken off my larger layers or whether I'm outdoors, I've got that knife on me. But then when I'm outdoors with my, with my jacket on, with my smock on, then I put a belt around that helps regulate temperature as well but also I've got a bigger knife um, normally my PK1 knife on there 
and um, a couple of other bits and pieces. I've got a clip I can clip my gloves onto if I, so I don't have to put my gloves down on the ground and um, a couple of other things. And one of the things I have on there is a small leather pouch. And in that leather pouch, I'll have a Leatherman. I've got a, um, a bandage. I've got some fishing kit, um, some snare wire, some stainless steel snare wire for, for ptarmigan snaring in the north. Um, the fishing kit's in there, so when I'm ice fishing, clearly I'm going to take some other equipment out onto the ice with me. I'm going to take an auger out with me. I'm going to take a snow shovel out with me. I might take a, a scoop to scoop out the, the slush from the, from the hole before ice fishing. But I've got my hooks and line and other bits and pieces in that small leather pouch. And also I guess that forms a, a kind of semi-survival kit in some ways. There's some bits and pieces that would be useful in there if I was lost or stranded. But fundamentally, it's just there for utility. I'm not having to delve into pockets for different things. It's there on my belt. I can open it, get the bits out that I need, and that's useful. There's a little bit of uh, tan paper in there as well, some waxed paper for fire lighting if I need it. Um, although I've normally got some perch bark stuffed in a pocket somewhere because there's mountains of it normally in the northern forest. Um, so yeah, I do like, a, but it's quite small. And the reason it's quite small is one of the things, particularly if I'm in Sweden, one of the things I'll end up doing at some point is driving a snow machine or being a passenger on a snow machine on a skidoo and they have seats and um, they have backs on the seats typically and a big pouch is going to get in the way it gets in the way of you getting on and off and it also means that if um if you're driving and you've got a pillion passenger and they're holding on to you it also gets in the way of them being able to get close to you and you maybe both need to move around the machine so loads of stuff around your belt is not going to be sensible in that situation then again so you know we talk about talk about um leather in general we talked about when i like a pouch um i don't like lots of stuff on my belt when i'm canoeing um because that's going to be an issue if i fall in it's going to you know if you're going down rapids and there are snags you can there's more likely to snag um, so I tend to just have my buoyancy aid, which I'm going to need to wear. And sometimes I have a, a bum bag with a rescue kit in, and that's a waterproof bag. And I've talked about that in the past. I talked about it in the survival situation um, that Andrew Casey gave me a while ago, because that's actually waterproof. You could put water in there and put, um, put uh, sterilization tablets in it if you needed to. But I keep um, some pulleys and... Um, carabiners and slings and a saw in there and that's rescue kit that's whitewater rescue kit that I keep in there I don't want anything else on my on my around my waist other than that I have a few of the bits and pieces in my buoyancy aid so I'll have a rescue knife um, I'll have a torch I may have a fire steel a spare fire steel in there as well as one in my pocket um, and uh, I have a few spare contact lenses in there I normally have a lip salve so I've got those things there um, whether I'm in my boat or I'm out of my boat, but I don't have loads of stuff. Um, hiking, anything on your waist is, a, is an issue when you're hiking with a backpack because you want the, um, the hip belt on your waist. And, you know, even having a belt knife on your, on your belt is an issue when you've got a good proper fitted rucksack on. So, 
if you're doing a proper hiking trip, having any of those sorts of things around is not a good idea. You could take the military approach of having a slightly higher Bergen and having belt kit underneath it, but that's all going to be flapping around, particularly if it's not really designed for covering ground. At least the military kit is designed and, and can be modified in a way that it doesn't smash around too much. Um, just having loads of stuff hanging off your trouser belt on with a, trying to get a rucksack over the top it, it doesn't work for most people and yes you can get things on low hangers but then they're flapping around so where I see most people using anything other than a really small leather belt uh, leather um, belt pouch in general is when they're in camp and uh, you know as a possibles pouch yeah it's a nice it's a nice idea you, you know i know i've seen a few videos recently where people say i don't wear this when i'm hiking i don't wear this when i'm canoeing but i put this on when i'm around and about camp and if you want to do that absolutely absolutely fine um, just in the same way as if you want to carry a survival kit um, but my view is that i try and have those things every trip's different in terms of every style of journey is different you know snowshoeing in the winter is different to canoeing in Canada in the summer or canoeing in Sweden in the summer or canoeing in Scotland in December that they're different the clothing you're going to be wearing is different the issues you're going to have if you fall in are different the issues that you have when you're camping are different um, hiking in the mountains is different to hiking long trails in the forest what you need to hand varies so what I try and do is just look at what I need to have to hand and make sure I've got those things. Now there are some standard things which I always try and have in pockets. So I try and have a folding locking blade in a pocket on one side and I try to have a fire steel in a pocket on the other side. I try and have a small first aid kit in my trouser pocket, whether I'm hiking, whether I'm canoeing, um, provided I'm not having to wear a dry suit, in which case it's kind of not necessary to have it there, you can't get at it. Um, but if I'm in the bush, whether it's snowshoeing or skiing in the winter, whether it's canoeing in the summer when I'm just wearing bush pants, whether I'm hiking in the hills or hiking um, in the forest, there's some standard things that I'm gonna have. Small pocket first aid kit in my thigh pocket, knife here, fire steel here, and maybe a hank of paracord and a few of the bits and pieces, um, cigarette lighter maybe, spare contact lenses, lip salve, those sorts of things. And whether I'm in, you know, in um, a situation where I'm, where, where I'm wearing Norina recon trousers, they've got the same two thigh pockets, two um, trouser pockets. Whether I'm, today, I've got my Lundhags hiking trousers on that I really like, same setup. Um, in, um, in the bush, in the summer, I'm probably gonna have some pair of Fjall Raven trousers on of some description. Again, thigh pockets, two waist pockets and a leather belt. That's just kind of my standard. Beyond that, what do you really need um, to have on your person? You might need a belt knife, you might need a saw, um, you might decide you want a, a larger first aid kit on you because you're going out a bit further away from camp and you're using an axe or what have you, you want to take that with you. That's fine, put those things on your on your belt. You Some people like to carry um, fire you know flint and steel and or a hudson's bay type um fire lighting kit yeah you might want a little leather pouch for those but I, again i would just suggest that they're fine as long as you're not trying to just come up with a solution to every scenario with everything that you might throw in a pouch because what you'll end up with is something that's unwieldy in pretty much every situation and that will just get on your nerves so um so for example my friend andy who lives up in scotland he's got a really nice little leather um 
pouch that somebody made for him that takes his Leatherman and he uses that a number of times a day. You know, he uses the pliers, he uses the knife. He has another little um, vertical pouch that he pops his, uh, pops his uh, hand torch into. He uses that all the time and that, they're just standard carry for him because they're standard use. And so that's the way that I would think about it. What's your standard use and what's the best way for you to carry? And um, when you go out into the field, you may well need to modify it because we can all sit at home and, and theorize about what works. And I've done this, I've done this lots. You kind of come up with, this will work great on that next winter camping trip. I'll organize my gear like this in my pockets or I'll organize my gear like this on my belt. And you get out and it's a faff, it doesn't work. Something irritates you about it, it catches on the, you know, on the uh, on the tump line or there's something which doesn't quite work about it and then you modify and that's the benefit of experience. So what I would say was don't try and come up with a solution for every single scenario you might ever think about. Think about what you actually do do, where you're going to go, under what circumstances and put together a pocket kit or a belt kit that suits you for those circumstances, bearing in mind that you might be having to carry kit, you might be having to carry a portage pack, you might be having to pull a pulk with a waist belt, you might be having to have a tump line around you for pulling a toboggan. Um, what are the circumstances that it's going to work and what are the circumstances it's not going to work and go from there. I don't think there's a general answer. I think it's a good option under the right circumstances. I use a leather pouch in the winter on my outside belt that has my bigger bigger stuff on it um, and that's about the only circumstances that I do because otherwise all those other scenarios that I've talked about in terms of the way that I journey cross-country skiing snowshoeing snow machining hiking in the woods or in the mountains or canoeing in the wilderness um, it doesn't work for me in, under any of those circumstances that was a long answer to a simple question <laughs> but hopefully that's added some value to some of you including Dave. Right, let's move on. Question from Midlife Camper via Instagram. There's a couple of photos of a bracket fungus and his question is, hi Paul Kirtley, is this horse's hoof fungus? I found it on the ground near oak and beech trees. Hashtag ask Paul Kirtley. So I found it. Um, no, it isn't. That looks to me like it is um, artist's bracket or artist fungus. You can see when they're fresh, they're white on the underside and you've done a good job. You've taken a photograph of the top, you've taken a photo photograph of the underside. Um, the pores, the, 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 that side, that surface, when it's fresh is, is almost white. And when you score it with your fingernail or a stick, it will uh, stain almost immediately a, a sort of cocoa-y brown, chocolatey, um, brown color and you can actually draw some really nice fine images on there and then when it um when it dries out um it's sort of set it's a bit like a nature's etch-a-sketch which doesn't reset if you like um and that's what you've got there and and th that whiteness goes to a slight brown color after a while but you can see from the marks on the underside of that that that's been marked um the top isn't right for horse's hoof fungus either um, you've got those sort of multiple layers and ridges like it's almost grown on top of each other. Um, whereas with horse's hoof, you, it's just like a single fingernail almost, if you like, round to the, um, round to the gills underneath, which are a, 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 a cappuccino colour underneath. But that's an artist bracket, particularly growing near on, on or near beach. That's typically where you find it, particularly in the UK. Um, Ganoderma, Aplan... 
Aplanatum, Aplanatum um, is the Latin name. So have a look at that and I think that's what you've got there, judging from your photographs. Next question. Tinder bundles and Ember extenders. Another one from Instagram from Chris Mernin. Hi, Chris. Good to hear from you again. Um, he says, I had success with an older bow drill today. Tried a bit of crushed charcoal in the dried goose grass bird's nest. Is there any other things you'd recommend as a Tinder bundle aid or Ember extender for use with bow drills? Oh, there's, there's tons of stuff. Chris, and, and probably more than I can cover in, in this, but um, one of the main things, whatever you're using, is to make sure the material in the middle is fine enough. That's, that is the most common mistake that I see teaching, teaching uh, students on our elementary wilderness bushcraft course and other courses, is that um, you can show people, this is classic example down in the south of England, one of the things that we use is sweet chestnut in a bark, partly because it's not obvious, and so you're teaching people to find a material that they wouldn't otherwise find. It also teaches them about that type of material because there are other species, um, whether it's lime, whether it's oaks, if they're, if they're degraded enough, um, poplars, there's, there are a number of species that you've got fibrous inner barks that you can, um, basswoods, uh, you know, for those of you that are in North America, I already mentioned limes, the same, same uh, genus, tilia. Um, there, are, there are a number of fibrous inner barks that you can use. Um, but one of the classic examples when I teach people that is I show them the material, I show them how to prepare it, and then when they come to apply the skills later in the week, themselves having practiced individual parts to bring it all together towards the end of the week one of the biggest reasons i see people fail is either because the tinder's still damp or because it's just not worked fine enough and so i would say the first thing to make sure before you start um adding other things in because what you don't want to be doing is compensating for the fact you don't have the fundamentals right the fundamental to get right is to make sure that it's as dry as absolutely possible and that the inner part the, the 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 innermost part of your of your bird's nest bundle is really very fine and the finer the the, the better really and so with with a lot of those barks it's a case of working it to to to, to be fine enough with other materials like um bracken for example dry bracken fronds or you mentioned um i think you said you used uh cleavers goosegrass gallium apirine yeah, dried goosegrass. Um, there's a limit to how fine you're gonna be able to buff that without it just disintegrating. Um, so you might wanna put something else inside to just get that initial little bit of um, contact with the ember so that, um, so that you, you take it into the finest material that's finer than the bulk. So what I often do is I've only got a small amount of fibrous material, so it might be some honeysuckle outer bark, it might be a bit of clematis bark I've worked up, it might be a bit of um, dried sweet chestnut, but you know, you can't always get a nice big sort of melon sized, um, you know, sort of cantaloupe sized or grapefruit sized piece of the same material. But if you can get some that's really super fine and then you can bulk it out on the outside with material that you know will work, but isn't as fine. So bracken, um, goosegrass, you know, even some dried grasses, although you can not normally get them a little bit finer. Um, but that's finest material on in the middle, 
So you've got your main bird's nest and then you've almost got like a mini bird's nest inside and then put the ember into that. That then will get enough contact with a really fine material to then start to grow and um, get the rest of it going. So it's not so much an ember extender, it's just you're leveraging your knowledge of the materials that are available to you. So that's one thing that you should be making sure that you do. The other thing that you should make sure you do if you need to is if you do want to use an ember extender, and I rarely need to use an ember extender, um, things that work well are um, things like dried um, Daldinia concentrica, King Alpha's cakes or cramp balls. They work very well. Um, they burn like charcoal. Um, horse's hoof fungus works very, very well. Um, just thinking of things that you're easily going to be able to pick up. Um, yeah, it's some dried charcoal. If you've got some dried charcoal from a previous fire, you've mentioned that, that would work. But at the end of the day, if you what I'm, what I'm wary of is, is recommending people do that and then they feel like they need to do that because actually most of the time you don't. It's about the materials that you've, that you've got. Um, getting a big enough ember from your bow drill in the first place. One thing I see a lot of people do, again, um, they, they have a go at bow drill, they'll get quite a lot of good black dust but they don't get an ember. They'll have a look and then they swipe it away and then they'll put their ember catcher underneath and they'll drill again and they'll and then they'll get an ember but that's it's only a relatively small ember um on top of not very much material now if they'd kept the previous material they've had a, they've had a bigger pile of dust there which would have caught so you've got your natural sort of ember extender there already if you like and you can build that up into a bigger ember before you put it into your um before you put it into your bird's nest. So I am shying away from giving you a huge list of things because I, I'm not sure there is a massive list of things that you can just pick up from the woods, stick on an ember and it's gonna help it, help it burn. What you're much better doing is spending time on learning a wider range of fibrous plant materials, downy seed heads, those type of things that you can take an ember to, then making sure your ember is as big as it can be in the first place, making sure that you prepared your materials properly in terms of them being as dry as possible and the, the, fibrous, the, the fine fibrous stuff in the middle is as fine and fibrous as possible. And if you've got some stuff around the outside, you know, you've got a really nice, you know, you can grab a bit of goose grass or a big bundle of bracken really quickly um, but then is that going to be quite fine enough in the middle every single time? Maybe not. So if you can then access some really super fine bit, a bit of honeysuckle, buff it right up, a bit of clematis, a bit of inner bark of something, buff that up to super, super fine, put that in the middle and then put your nicely formed ember into that. That's probably the most general answer that I can give you for general success on that. But yeah, by all means, experiment with some of the bracket fungi. Um, they're, they're probably the biggest one that you might want to use as an ember extender other than just putting different materials in and playing with them. Question, online bushcraft courses. This is from Peter Magnin. 
Hey Paul, Peter here from Nebraska in the US. Thanks for answering previous questions of mine and all the great content you put up on your up, up for our community. My question is, what are your thoughts and opinions about online bushcraft classes or courses? Bushcraft USA has a series of classes called Bush Class. The instructor demonstrates the objective and then tells you the requirements and it's the student's job to practice and perform, then record with pictures or videos of the task and then they will evaluate you. I think it's great motivation for practicing skills and getting outside and actually doing it. But I also believe it's no substitute to real hands-on classes such as your own. It would be awesome if I could check, if you could check them out. Well, I haven't checked out the Bushcraft USA course. I do actually run some online training programs myself. And um, I mean, you mentioned all my materials that I put online. There's 99% of the material I put online is free and they are all educational in one way or the other. Um, you know, even if I'm sharing what we did on a day out um, or, or canoeing, I'm normally trying to build a story around something that's useful to the viewers, um, as well as maybe being a bit more entertaining. But a lot of the material that's on my, on my blog and on my YouTube channel um, including these shows, is about helping people along their journey um, with skills um, and helping them along with their own voyage of discovery of nature, of natural resources, of skill sets, how to apply them. Um, and I try and encourage that because um, it's important. It's important that we hold on to these things. Um, I do have some paid uh, courses that are online as well, and you have to be on my mailing list to, for me to send uh, information out to you on those as and when they're open. They're not always open. And um, they have proven very, very useful to the people who have been in them. It's more focused, um, higher production values, in some way, particularly in terms of some of the videos. Um, we spent a lot of time and money making those. And um, there's no evaluation, though, because at the end of the day, what I say, um, or what somebody at Bushcraft USA says, that can be helpful in terms of an evaluation, but nature's the evaluation and you know i'm going off on a tangent here in, in a second but i've had a few comments on um on it's, it's normally youtube i don't know what it is about youtube that people feel like they can just behave badly on youtube but you know i've had a few comments on youtube and i'm not getting for those of you that say ignore the trolls yeah i do ignore the trolls but this guy one guy i'm thinking on particularly wasn't really trolling but the, there are people with an attitude that they're clearly not really outdoors people they're probably working in a profession or a job where they have to argue their point all the time, every day, to get anything done. And they take that home with them, they take it to their, um, they take it to their hobbies and their interests. And so I'm trying to share something which I know that, that works. And then you have somebody saying, well, justify it, justify it. Why, and, and, and picking up, picking faults in their, perception of my logic um, I'm just sharing stuff I know works and if you don't like it go somewhere else it works for me it works for my students it works in reality and what doesn't work is somebody's opinion about whether or not it works it either does or it doesn't and that's not down to somebody's opinion it's down to physics and nature um, you know it's down to is this thing cold wet or is it dry and warm is it fibrous enough going back to the previous questions is it fibrous enough or is it not does it work or doesn't it it's binary yeah um 
it's not based on your opinion. Yeah. Belief is important when you're, when you're lighting fires or doing something which requires an effort. Belief in your own skill set, belief in the skill. But somebody's opinion about whether or not it works based on reasoning as opposed to experience is worth nothing. What's important is experience of people who've done it. And um, I'm not interested in arguing the toss with people who've not tried things. You know, they're arguing against what I know works. It's like, I know this, okay, I'm explaining things here verbally. I'm not demonstrating. And we've talked about the reasons for that in the past. We'd get one of these out a year if, you know, we had to, I had to get a cameraman in, cameraman in to film all the different circumstances about all the different questions, you know, oh, we've just talked about snowshoeing, we've talked about canoeing, we've talked about skiing, we've talked about firelighting, we've talked about firelighting in different environments. Um, if we had to film the answers to everything with me doing all of this, you'd, we'd maybe get one done a year and it would cost £10,000 to film because we have to fly to three different continents. <laughs> but the anyway, the, I am going on a bit of a rant. I haven't had a rant for a while. Um, but the point is, I'm trying to share advice here. And okay, I can't show you, but equally, I don't feel like I need to justify everything from first principles. I'm just saying, this is what I have seen works. Okay, this is what I have seen works. Um, and so when it comes to your own learning, um, yes, you can go and learn through trial and error. Yes, I can give you hints and tips. And un under some circumstances, when you've tried things, you will benefit most from me giving you hints and tips, whether that's via this format or whether it's in person on a course. You can ask me a question, I'll give you an answer. You go away and try it again with that extra piece of information or that insight into what you've been doing. And it may well work for you in a different way because you're gonna modify slightly what you do. Um, but evaluating you can evaluate yourself. This is the thing with a lot of these skills. Did you carve a spoon? Yes or no. Did you make feather sticks which you could light with a spark? Yes or no. Did you um, achieve an ember with your bow drill set? Yes or no. Did you try seven different species of wood and get embers with all of them? Yes or no. You can evaluate those things yourself. Nature will be your evaluator. My job as an instructor, as a teacher, is to try and help you get up that curve quicker. Um, and I can certainly put you under pressure under certain circumstances to give you certain types of training, other types of training. I don't want to put you under pressure. Um, I want you to explore. I want you to play. Play is important. You know, we've, we're, we're so much in a, in a mindset these days, particularly with content, continuing professional development, with um, certifications, with health and safety and having to tick boxes and having to have the right piece of paper and the right certificate and qualifications and getting funding for things that we forget as adults just to play around with stuff, play around with things and see what works, see what doesn't. There is an element of that and that's not about, you know, with all of these physical skills, things work or they don't work. Now, what you want with an instructor is to help you along the, you know, give you some feedback. And that's, so you talk about hands-on courses. Absolutely. Yeah. If I'm with you for a week and you're trying stuff, we can go through many, many more iterations 
of you trying and failing and trying with this and trying with that and me giving you advice and me showing you how to do things again and you going back and trying again, the feedback loop is shorter and more immediate and you can get up the curve quicker. Also, I can tailor my advice to specifically, you know, on one of my elementary courses, um, six day course, I have a maximum of 12 students on that course and I have at least two assistant instructors with me. Yeah, so that's quite a high ratio of eyes on you in what you're doing. And so we can give you personalized feedback. We can help you specifically with where you're at with your skills and how you're finding things um, and, and get you up the curve quicker. That's the benefit of having somebody there. That's entirely possible online as well. Um, but the feedback loop is going to be slower and it's possible that the advice that you're going to get is more generalized. Um, but you know, there are some people within our community who are anti-videos, they're anti-blogs uh, as an as a educational um, medium, they're anti-podcasts and, you know, it's all technology and, you know, you should do a course. I'd love, I, I, I'd like for you to, to, to come and do a course with me, but I reach many, many, many more people with Aspore Kirtley's, with YouTube videos, with my free online content, of which there is much. Go to paulkirtley.co.uk if you want some of that, um, but also some of the paid content that I put out, and it's, it's aimed to, to solve particular problems for people that have um, a particular knowledge gap, and it gets them up the curve much more quickly than them just floundering around on their own. Um, some people used to be anti-books, like, oh, you know, books are going to be the death of storytelling. Look, look into it. Look in, you know, the, the, these opinions, whenever you get a new medium for sharing information, some people are anti it because they think it's going to destroy what's gone before. And yes, we need to be careful about what's gone, you know, preserving the best of what's gone before. But equally, we need, we have new technologies. We can make, we can take advantage of them. When I was a kid, um, I had a few books about bushcraft, well, not, they weren't even called bushcraft, I had a few books about survival skills, um, and that was all I had to work on. I had some military magazines that had some survival skills in, I had some books that had survival skills in them, um, I had a scouting manual and I had a few other things, and that was all I had to go on. There were no YouTube videos, there were no online courses, there were no blogs, there were no online resources, there were no downloadable PDFs or, you know, nothing. Um, we live in a world where you can be halfway around the world. You know, we've had questions from um, Canada. We've had questions from Florida. We've had questions from around the UK. We have regularly have questions from all over the world on this show. We're connected as a community and we can share ideas and knowledge um, around these information hubs. That's fantastic as far as I'm concerned because everybody gets up the curve faster. When I first went on a bushcraft course, um, most people on that course, I was there as a student, um, most people on that course had never seen friction firelighting before. Most people didn't even know it was still possible. There was, you know, friction firelighting in most people's mind was the old joke about rub, rubbing two Boy Scouts together. And nobody really generally had a good idea about friction firelighting. Um, we've gone through a whole revolution of these skills being shown on television, these skills being shared around the internet with YouTube and blogs and details, you know, we've just been talking about um, we've just been talking about uh, bow drill and, and specifics of, of a technique and specific materials. 
Um, that wasn't possible many, many years ago. And now what, I, what I'm finding is that people are coming into this skill set, particularly coming onto courses or coming onto online courses with a higher level of basic knowledge. They don't necessarily have a high level of basic skill always, although sometimes they do, because they've tried things for themselves. They've seen something on the internet, they've seen something on television, they've tried it out at home. Then they come on a course and I help them fix the issues that they're having and they get up the curve faster. They're, at the end of the course, they're at a better place than if they'd never seen it before. So I do think there's place for the online learning, um, whether it's free, whether it's paid, to, to, to complement the physical learning, whether that's done under the direct tutorship of somebody like me or another instructor, or whether they're trying things out for themselves, trial and error. And uh, yeah, it all fits together in a nice mesh. And then you've got the option of pulling down different resources that suit you, your lifestyle, um, the amount of time that you've got to devote. I've got a lot of time to devote to this subject. Other people, it's their hobby, it's their interest. It might be part-time, um, they're involved in looking after scouts. It might be that they're part-time involved in assisting at a bushcraft school. It might be that they work summer camps with kids, but the rest of the time they do something else. Not everybody does this full-time and I recognize that. So, you know, you can't train everyone to be up to instructor standard um, with a breadth of knowledge and a depth of skill. Um, you need to get people to where they want to be. You know, where does it fit in with their canoe camping? Where does it fit in with our hiking? Where does it fit in with going out camping with their kids? Everyone's got different, um, different requirements. And I think the more resources there are around that help fit those different people's needs in different combinations, the better. So yeah, I'm all, I'm all for different methods of learning, books, magazines, videos, blog articles, how-tos, um, paid online courses, paid physical courses, um, experiences where you're tested more, wilderness expeditions where you're with um, experienced people that can help you stay safe but get up the experience curve, all of them have their part to play. The, the important thing is though that where you're getting the information from is a good quality source. People are not just making it up or, or BSing that it comes from experience. There's some things that I will, won't answer. I won't answer questions on. I'll refer to, you know, one of the areas I've talked about before is flint napping. I have done some flint napping. I'm not a flint napping expert. I won't answer questions on flint napping on this show. I won't teach flint napping. It is on the periphery of my bushcraft skill set, but I would refer you to somebody like Will Lord. And, and that, that is, you know, that is my view. You've got to go to the experts in a particular area and get the best information because there's a lot of rubbish information out there on the internet as well. Um, bushcraft courses for scout leaders. What time are we on? I've been talking quite a lot. Just looking at the time on the camera here. Yeah, I need to move. Move on. It's cooling down a bit here as well. Okay, this is from Ryan Rainsford. Um, and he says, um, hi, Paul, I've recently discovered your Ask Paul Kirtley podcast. I find it very informative and interesting. My question is, have you ever wondered about running a course for scout leaders? As a fairly new scout leader, I have noticed the desire for leaders to teach the scouts and cubs simple bushcraft. However, most leaders have no idea how to. I think it would be great if there was a short course with highly skilled company to teach us what is safe to teach young people and how to do so. It would be tremendously useful. Thanks for making the show regards ryan well in a way i already do run courses for scout leaders 
all of the courses that I run are for scout leaders in the same way as they're for anybody who's interested in the skill set. I don't think there's a different subset of bushcraft that's suitable for scouts as to suitable for anybody else. Um, clearly the basics are the basics for everyone, um, you know, fires and shelters and putting tarps up and making tent pegs and all those sorts of campcraft things and woodcraft things are the same for me and they're the same for a scout leader um, in terms of the skill set. So, you know, I would say, you know, short course, um, bush, our Bushcraft Essentials course, two-day course, very, very good for people who want to get up the curve with some of the basics very, very quickly. Um, Six-day course is going to give you a lot more depth and breadth on those basics. And then I think particular, of particular interest to scout leaders is our woodcrafter course, which is all about axes and using axes and campcraft and campfire cookery. Those three go together very, very well. Um, two-day sort of introduction and then in, into more depth in those other two. And you might think, well, that's over two weeks of training. Yeah, that's probably the minimum you need to even have a basic um, a basic efficacy with those skills and some people who will argue against that um fine i i'm again i'm speaking from experience of people are coming in with little, you're talking about people coming in with little experience of the skill set um in terms of a, of a good grounding in some some basic bushcraft skills to a reasonable level it's possible that my standards are higher than other people's but to a, you know people like spoons and i will hold you to a high standard but we will get you to a good standard and those courses are good now i appreciate that you're also looking for things you know you're looking for questions about um how to teach them I mean, teaching is an, is an entirely different skill set to, to doing in a lot of ways. I mean, having an understanding of doing is going to help you explain things, but you're going to have to, you know, disassemble what you do to teach it properly um, in terms of analysing what it is that you do, how it, how, particularly if you've internalised the skill set. Sometimes it's easier for people that are new to the skill to explain it to other people because it's still there in their conscious mind, whereas somebody who's been doing something for a long time has so internalised the skill and the knowledge that for them to then break it down to teach to somebody who's never seen it before is quite difficult and they have to go through a process of learning how to teach that skill um, and that's something to bear in mind as well something that we do you know we, we spend a lot of time with I spend time with my assistant instructors looking at how do you actually teach a skill and I try and get them on other um, on other courses as well you know whether it's canoe coaching courses or mountain leadership courses so they, they they're experienced in lots of different aspects it makes them think about what they normally do in something that's more familiar um, and then they can go back and apply um, thinking about coaching or thinking about leadership to what they do on their in their core bushcraft competency as well as well as spending time on workshops um, I don't know what support there is at the moment within the scouting the various branches of, of scouting around the world in terms of training people up to be leaders in terms of looking after people um, I know that there are certain competencies which you have to have in order to be able to do certain activities with with scouts um, and I'm sure some scout leaders can probably leave some comments underneath here about um, what support there is if any about learning how to teach not teach specific things but just in terms of teaching in general and teaching skills there may be something there within scouting that you can tap into but in terms of the hard skills all of the courses that we run would be suitable for somebody who wants to take their skills to other people um, that's what they're for they're, they're there to, 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 to put the course to put the uh, information across in a in an efficient format so that people can learn learn the skills and and practice the skills 
Um, and, and indeed, we've, we have many scout leaders who come, I should just say that, um, it's not me sort of making some desperate um, sales plea to scout leaders all of a sudden. We have many scout leaders who do come on our courses, whether it's the short course Bushcraft Essentials, whether it's um, even our one day course, um, a Bushcraft and Survival Foundation course, we've had a few scout leaders come and do that and say very good things about it. But more generally, I would say the two day course is the minimum for some of the harder skills. We get quite a few scout leaders who come on, you know, committed scout leaders who come on the um, week-long courses, in, in particular those two that I mentioned to you, the Elementary Wilderness Bushcraft course and the Woodcrafter, which is all about axes and campcraft and campfire cooking and putting up big tarps and knots and all of that skill set, you know, that goes around, you know, some of what would go into pioneering, if you like, lashings and those sorts of things. And uh, yeah, we have had very good feedback on that from scout leaders as well. So have a look at those and you know tie that in with some um, learning about teaching theory, whether it's from within your own organization or whether doing a bit of self-study on that. And I think you'll get up the curve very, very quickly. And I understand exactly a good friend of mine, um, he moved out of London uh, into Buckinghamshire, wanted his kids to go to scouts. And they said, well, there's, there's a two year waiting list in the local scout group unless you want to become an assistant leader and then we can have more capacity and your kids can come. So that's what he did. But he was a townie who had not been camping for 30 years and had no bushcraft skill set, no woodcraft skill set, probably wouldn't have been able to do anything that was in Baden-Powell's Scouting for Boys. Um, you know, apart from tie, you know, tie a basic knot to tie shoelaces, no disrespect to him, he's a very capable guy. Um, but just didn't have that background. And so, yeah, it's a common thing for people to be, because of their kids and because they want their kids to be involved and they want to be involved with their kids and their community, they want to get involved, but they don't have the background. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my thoughts on that, Ryan. Good question. Getting cold now. So I'm gonna, gonna move on. Sun's going down, there's a bit of mist coming up. Um, what makes a bushcraft knife? Another question from Instagram with an Ask Paul Kirtley hashtag. This is from Zombie Fighter of 2001. Good name. Um, I have a sort of philosophy gear combo question on your opinion, and I will include my opinion in the bottom paragraph too, if anyone cares. But my question is, what makes a bushcraft knife a bushcraft knife to you? Not part of the question, just my opinion. Sorry, I'm having difficulty reading this okay so it's a philos philosophical gear combo question on my opinion and is included his opinion at the bottom his question is simply what makes a bushcraft knife a bushcraft knife to you and then his his opinion is below that and his opinion is a true bushcraft knife is not about the steel grind handle but it's about that history the design holds, i.e. The, the Puko, with its centuries of use, is a real bushcraft knife. Unlike something like a combat-style knife, since it has little history of woods use. Well, I think in a lot of ways, a bushcraft knife, I mean, it's very much a modern term, and it's come into use in, in recent decades. Um, in some ways, there isn't such a thing as a bushcraft knife. Um, as, I, as I've said quite a few times, there's bushcraft and then there's kit. 
and a knife is clearly kit, a knife is equipment. Bushcraft is the skill set around using the bush and the natural materials that you find there, whether they be animal, plants, fungi, whatever they are, you, you're using those materials. A knife is a tool that you take with you most of the time in modern, you've talked about modern knives. Okay, we're not gonna talk about flint napping and going out and making your own knife because in most places that is very difficult because of the lack of suitable resources nearby. There's a reason why flint was traded widely and obsidian and other materials were found a long way away from where they, where they were extracted is because they, they would be worth going that far to get or, for, or trading to get them just in the same way as it's worth us trading to get a metal knife. Um, it's worth us trading our cash, our time that we spend working and earning some money or earning some goods and giving that in exchange for a tool that we know is going to be valuable. And I think the value then is the question, what's the value of this tool? And you want it to be useful for the things that you're going to be doing in the bush. So I think that's what makes it, if you, if you want me to answer the question in a straightforward fashion, what makes a bushcraft knife a bushcraft knife? It's what is the bushcraft that you're going to be doing and which tool is the one which is suitable to do those things. So um, what's a good bushcraft knife in the north of Scandinavia in the winter might be different to what's a good bushcraft knife in Arizona. It might be different to what's a good bushcraft knife in the Philippines. It might be different to what's a good bushcraft knife in northeastern Australia. So that's the question. You know, it's like what makes a good bushcraft knife? It's good in the bush where you are. That's that's the thing. And can you do the things that you want to do? Is it going to last? Is it is it going to be durable? Is it going to be easy to maintain? Is it going to be easy to sharpen with the resources that you have in the bush? That's what makes a good bushcraft knife for me. It's easily maintainable, pretty much indestructible, um, easily maintainable in the sense that it sharp, sharpens with something that's portable and lightweight. I don't have to carry, you know, a portable, you know, workbench set up, you know, with belt grinders and polishing pastes and stuff with me. I, I, can I, can I keep this thing going with a, at most, a, a small sharpening stone, um, a slip stone, maybe with a couple of different grades on it, and, uh, and maybe some, a little bit of oil with me or something to keep it in good nick. That, that, so it needs to be maintainable in the, in, the, in the field. So in terms of the materials it's made from, um, under the circumstances I may find myself in, is it going to get wet? Is it going to get cold? Am I going to be battening with it? Am I going to be skinning animals with it? Um, what, what am I going to be using it for? Is it going to be good for that job? And can I maintain it in the field for the amount of time that I'm there? I think one of the reasons there's a lot of debate about bushcraft knives is because a lot of them don't really get used very much. And, um, and again, it goes back to that point that we made earlier in the show about people building up theories around the usage of, of equipment as opposed to basing uh, their, their opinion on experience. You know, there's a difference between having an opinion because you have, you've, you've thought about something, but it's in, um, in a vacuum away from it being applied in reality and a difference from that and having your opinion based on experience of you trying something. 
And I think you have to be very humble when it comes to um, nature. Nature will tell you whether you're right or not. And, um, and that isn't a sort of woo-woo, kind of hippie-ish thing. I mean, like it works or it doesn't work. Yeah, this knife um, broke when I batoned with it. And yes, okay, I'm gonna get the, ah, oh, you shouldn't be battening with a knife brigade having a go at me. You should always carry a, an ax wherever you go. Yeah, okay, practicality. I'll let you think about that one. Um, also training for different scenarios. Yep. Fall out your canoe in the middle of nowhere in Canada. What's more likely to be on your belt? A knife or an axe? You're never gonna have an axe. You'd be stupid to canoe with an axe on your belt. You, you can get away with having a bush knife on your belt. Um, you know, practicality, you know, is this knife going to be durable under the circumstances that I find myself in? Um, that's what makes it a good bush knife. And the circumstances you find yourself in in different environments are gonna be different. You maybe need something bigger in a tropical, in a wet tropical environment particularly. Um, you're gonna need something different in a northern temperate environment. You're gonna need something different if you're doing a lot of wood carving as opposed to butchering animals. Depends what you're doing and therefore, you know, Again, engineering problem, it's an engineering problem. It's a piece of equipment which solves an engineering problem. You know, what do you need it to do? Specify it. How easily, does it, how durable does it need to be? How easily maintainable does it need to be? Um, that specifies what makes, the, makes it a good tool. Um, but experience is important because if you just make all that stuff up in isolation, it's not going to perform. You also need a feedback loop with reality, which is why I think going back to your original question, things like the Puko are really, really good in that environment in the, in the northern forest because people got to that point from experience, not from theorizing. Yes, there was probably a theory to start off with. Let's make something like this. Okay, we tried it. It would be better if it was like this. It would work better. Okay, let's try that. Oh, that works better. Great. Oh, no, that doesn't work better. Let's go back to original design. Let's change it this way. There is a feedback loop via contact with reality. Yeah, and that's what I see lacking in a lot of knife designs these days. People are just making stuff up, making the design and selling it um, with some of the esoteric designs, whereas you know the classic designs are classics because they've stood the test of time and they've stood that contact with reality. And that's, at the end of the day, the best guide that you've got. So. Last one, and it's not a question, just a little bit of inspiration. This is from uh, Tom Scandian, who, is uh, somebody who's from the UK. He's currently living in Australia. He has never done a physical course with me, but he has done both of my online trainings. And uh, if you're interested in my online trainings, get on my mailing list at paulkirtley.co.uk because in the new year, I will be sending out um, an email that basically says, if you're interested, let me know, and then I'll send you more information. So um, if you're interested in my online trainings, then get on my mailing list, my general mailing list, where I keep you updated with everything that's going on on my blog anyway. It's all useful stuff, um, but then I'm also gonna let you know about when those other things are going on. Um, so Tom has, has been on both my tree and plant identification masterclass as well as on my online elementary wilderness course. And um, he's a great example of, somebody, of, of how this training can work, going back to the previous question, how this training can work, but you have to apply it and try it in your own time. So, um, 
this this is not to do with the online trainings but i just wanted to give you some context about tom um he's one of my star students and i don't i don't mind saying that i'm not trying to shame anybody else it's just that he has taken the material that i've put out both in terms of free as well as paid and run with it and really made it his own and he's a great example to anybody else who wants to see the value in, in the potential in those in those um, distance learning programs so um tom says i'm a huge follower of Aspor Kirtley and i love having access to such brilliant information on tap every week. I do try and do it every week, but not always. Um, last week's episode reminded me that uh, it had been ages since practicing lashing. As was mentioned, it's not always possible to take trees and branches down as well as dig up for roots, dig for roots for campcraft in your area. Anyway, hopefully this post will reiterate, even in the comfort of your home, you can practice these skills. Uh, the key is repetition and aiming for perfection every time. These branches were for my firewood pile and cordage is normal house string, all done before work this morning. There is no excuse not to practice these skills when we can learn worldwide applicable skills from the comfort of our own homes if necessary. These can be substituted for roots and larger branches when we're out and about at a more fixed camp. I think that's a great message and I just wanted to share that with you. It wasn't a question, nice Instagram post from Tom there showing some of the work that he's been doing on his on practicing his lashings and another example of how you can take these skills, break them down into easily practicable units and practice them at home and fit them in with the rest of your life. And I'm hoping that this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley as as quite long as it seems to have been I'm getting a bit chilly sitting here now the frost is the frost is uh, increasing again and it's getting a bit misty down here by the stream um, hopefully that has given you some food for thought it's given you some inspiration to go and try some things out and um, and yeah what I would like you to do this episode is likely to be coming out very close to the end of 2016 what I would like you to be doing um, going forward is just thinking about the skills that you want to work on in 2017, areas of knowledge you want to work on um, and that's about you being honest with yourself, looking at yourself and saying where are my weak spots. Um, that could be the basics, that could be um, tree and plant identification, it could be fungi identification, it could be animal tracks and sign, it could be natural navigation, it could be any of those things. and um, I put out a skills list back in the um, back in the summer. It was part of the presentation that I gave at the Bushcraft Show in uh, the summer of 2016, and you could download that skills list, and that's still up. And I'll put a link to it here. I'll put a link to it under the YouTube. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, you can get that skills list if you don't have it already. It's a 15 or 16 page document with a quite detailed list, bullet pointed list of skills that I think are a really good baseline of skills to get under your belt as a modern bushcraft person, as a bushcrafter if you want to use that term. Um, so get that list, have a look at it, have a think about where your weaknesses are in those basics, maybe make a list for 2017 going forwards, things you want to work on, chip it down as, as the way that Tom does it, a little bit here, a little bit there, in your backyard, in your home, you can work on a lot of skills that way. Um, and also, if you think you've got all of those skills nailed, we're all, um, we're all still learning. We've all got things we, uh, we could improve on. What else? And then maybe at some point in the coming weeks, we will have a discussion about what that 
what uh, what those what those are. Um, don't start leaving me comments now. We've already got questions about what you can do with a nine-year-old and how you can learn to be a good teacher as part of the Scouting Association. Comments on that underneath these. Um, you know, let's not confound it with with comments about something else. But um, have a think about as we go over the end of the year. Have a think about what your bushcraft New Year's resolutions are in terms of your skill and knowledge improvement or just experience maybe you've just spent a load of time nailing lots of skills and now you want to go out and do some more trips that again experience 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 you know that is way too underemphasized in the bushcraft world it's a lot about kit a lot about skills but we also need experience of it doesn't have to be going out and applying everything under any circumstances but just going out and making some journeys and being out in nature and understanding the the realities of wind and rain and cold and lighting fires in even if you're using normal you know just matches or fire steel what have you just making a journey and doing things in real time um that gives you a different perspective on a lot of these skills even if you're not using them in that in that circumstance because you think you, you learn more about what's possible in time frames um that's that's an important thing to do so whether it's hard skills areas of knowledge or areas of experience you want to gain in 2017 have a think about that if you've got a quiet moment in the coming days you're out for a walk you've got a few days off work over the new year have a think about those things because that will then those times of reflection are what really set you on a course for in personal improvement and all of these questions that I get at the end of the day are about personal improvement. They're about how do I improve my ability to do this with my kids? How do I improve my ability to do this with the scouts? How do I improve my personal ability with this skill? How do I improve my personal ability with this material, with this skill? Um, a lot of the questions we get are about improving your personal ability with bushcraft and survival skills. So take, take a few moments to reflect on where you want to go with that in 2017. And I will see you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, which will be out in early 2017. Take care. Have a great new year wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Stay out of trouble and uh, see you soon. Take care.